right in your eyes. All I see are a bunch of trashy daydreams. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Wake Island. Before we get into it, let me set the stage with a quote from Jason's book, Omnicide. In it, he says, Every storyteller harbors a secret desire to be the one who tells the last story, just as every maniac wishes to inscribe the last fateful madness on Earth. I think this crystallizes the essence of today's conversation. It's not just a great podcast episode, but a truly invigorating dialogue to have with someone so artistically like-minded as Jason, who's not only generous with their time and knowledge, but also has a true passion for the dark poetics of the avant-garde. In a world that doesn't always appreciate the vitality of annihilation, we savored this opportunity. We get into forbidden literature and the last words of poets who lean into the dark and authors who create at the intersection of insanity and an intoxication. We even tread into opium dreams and the idea of mania redeeming nihilism. We explore relentless aesthetics, the beauty of undeniability, and the scenario of articulating our last words at the final moment. What incarnation of ourselves can we summon? What distillation of our essence would we leave behind? I love thinking about that concept. What an ecstatic way to prove your character. Jason Babak Mahagaj is a philosopher, literary theorist, and professor of comparative literature at Babson College. His work delves into chaos, violence, illusion, silence, extremism, mania, disappearance, night, evil, secrecy, and apocalyptic writing. With nine published books to his name, we're primarily going to focus on his recent double series, Night, A Philosophy of the After Dark, Night, A Philosophy of the Last World, and Omnicide, Mania, Fatality, in the Future in Delirium, and its sequel, Omnicide 2, Mania, Doom, and the Future in Deception. Make sure that you stay tuned for part two of our conversation, which we'll be dropping next week. For now, prepare to embrace madness as we plunge headlong into unreality. You know, wherever you are in the world, you're the center of the universe. And so these, this constellation of Eastern or non-Western or outsider writers are outsider from our vantage, you know, in our perspective, but they're absolutely iconic and legendary figures in their own regions, you know? Uh, and so uh, I just, I've really wanted, and I've taken great pride and, and honor in collecting them together sort of, and putting their resonances out there. But these have been palpitating in our minds and in our, our blood systems and our veins for God knows how long, you know, for, for centuries at this point. Uh, and you're absolutely right that there is, there is a, a visceral material quality because many of these writers have suffered very tangible circumstances, exile, torture, uh, execution in some places, you know, in some instances, um, extreme poverty. Uh, but I wouldn't minimize the, the prices that were paid on the so-called Western or European avant-garde side as well. You mentioned Rambeau. He was a runaway who lived in the streets. You know, he probably shivered a lot of nights in the cold there. 
potentially died in Java. That's right. That's right. That's right. And probably considered, you know, a freak and stigmatized, you know, by mainstream society in his time. We've seen the photos of Antonin Artaud with the electroshock therapy to the brain and the devastation that that racked across what used to be a very striking, you know, charismatic face. And then we just saw it wither within a decade at the hands of, you know, the guardians of normality. Uh, and so they fought madness. They fought poverty on that side as well. It's just we've forgotten that uh, in our idealization of them, you know, and, and sort of in our retroactive regrouping of them. We forgot that, you know, Nietzsche went mad and Nietzsche was very lonely, you know, and that solitude was something that, I mean, it tangibly manifested in him taking these very, very long walks by himself every day. Uh, you know, Bataille has this beautiful line where he says, I picture Nietzsche walking by that lake. I picture him leaning against that pyramidal rock that he always chose. I picture him laughing. And whenever I picture Nietzsche laughing, I start to weep. You know, so these are, uh, on the Middle Eastern side, it definitely is flagrant, though, um, because uh, they don't get away with it most of the time. Uh, and they're not off the hook of being placed in dungeons or being uh, having to go into hiding or most of their work being underground. And that's something that I want to differentiate, Paul, to your excellent question about sort of what is the difference? Well, one of the bizarre, perverse advantages of living in a totalitarian society is that there is no formal intelligentsia as there is in the Western Academy that can co-opt and ruin and diminish the intensity of your writers. And I say this as an academic who works in a university setting for the past two decades. Uh, the dilution, the mediate, mediocritization, the disenchantment that accompanies those white rooms and their you know, scholarly analysis, it's pure neurosis most of the time. Um, even though I try to turn my classroom atmospheres into something more of a circus effect or a carnivalesque <laughs> kind of a situation. But uh, that's not what it's built for. Those institutions are institutions of surveillance. They're institutions of of the dampening of consciousness. Uh, but out in the out in, out in the other reaches where I come from, in the in the eastern provinces, uh, the writers there they're forced into you know uh, these these wayward and wayside kind of ruins where they gather, and so you don't have. Well, at the same time, I'm not. I don't want to idealize again uh, authoritarian. Uh, configurations because they are brutal. It's not like we send thank you notes to these governments for oppressing our authors. But nevertheless, it gives them a slight autonomy. It gives them, you know, it, it allows them to carve out a space in the dark uh, where they have no rules. And they, you know, they can say unfathomed things. And there's not this pseudo intellectual class that then kind of conspires to uh, to compartmentalize and classify everything to death. And so their words are still like thunder and lightning there. And that's why I choose to align myself with them. God knows, just like Paul, you and, you and David, I have no shortage of collection of my favorite uh, writers from the Western sides as well. It's just that these figures are, no one's tampered with them. Right. And maybe someone like Nietzsche, you know, it kind of proves your point that you can see how tampered with he is, given that we don't we have to be reminded of the madness and pain of his life. We don't immediately feel that when we think about Nietzsche because he's been so talked and written about to death in, in the West. Absolutely. And not to get off on a sort of a, a critical rant on this, but when you look at the back of uh, you know, a collection of his works, which we know the blood on the page, we know what went into it, we know that he was ridiculed, we know he was unpublished, uh, we knew that he was disowned in many regards. Um, 
you know, when we read the, a quote on the back and it's by some professor at the University of Ohio or somewhere, you know, who writes seven books on Nietzsche that Nietzsche himself would never want to read. And then he writes something <laughs> like, uh, Nietzsche was, uh, was definitively one of the most important German thinkers of the late 19th century. You see the layers of cynical qualification. You know, one of the most significant thinkers of in Germany of the late 19th century, not one of the most menacing, brilliant, devastating writers ever to cross the planet, which is what by right they should say. And who the hell is this guy from the University of Ohio who's never, you know, never sacrificed at those levels, who's made a career, you know, off the bones uh, and the echoes of this of this figure who was tormented in his own time? to go and authorize, and uh, you know, it's not even an affirmation. It has all the tonality of pomposity, which I can't stand, you know, and none of the intimacy that comes with, with the vulnerability and the fragility of reading someone who played at those borderlines of insanity with every single line, you know? And so uh, definitely that's why I choose again to throw dice with my brothers and sisters from the Eastern fronts because they remain untouched artifacts. Uh, to a great extent, for very bad reasons. But nevertheless, that lets us play and throw dice at wonderful levels. And you could say, you know, the government, part of why it oppresses them so much is that it takes them more seriously, right? It sort of believes in the power of what they're saying and yeah. therefore crushes it. Whereas in the West, you know, it may still certainly be better than being tortured to death or, or anything like that. But there, But the price you pay for it is what you're saying, that these intellectuals are integrated, but at the cost of being neutered and, and sort of compartmentalized. And, you know, it's a different kind of death in that way. Absolutely. absolutely. No, it, it is a sign. You know, if, if I, again, I, I don't want to get off on negative uh, standpoint here, but, you know, if I bring 30 of my, of my students together, even my upper level students, you know, at an undergraduate level who are supposedly, you know, at this elite institution, educational institution, they can't name me five living American poets, five living American painters, five living American sculptors or journalists or philosophers or composers, uh, filmmakers, uh, architects. No, it's a blank face. They can't even name me one among the 30 of them. But I will say this. This is just an empirical, verifiable fact. Uh, these writers that I that I summon in books like Omnicide and Omnicide 2, figures like Ahmad Shamlu from Iran or Mahmoud Darwish in Palestine, I would say almost 100% of the population know them. Really? Like it's, it's almost unthinkable. They're not esoteric. They're on the tips of the tongues. People fear them. The way that you're supposed to confront things that are sublime. There's a hint of dread uh, mixed with awe and beauty in there. And there's another reason for that, too, uh, that I'll tell you both, which is that one of the other wonderful things that didn't happen on the so-called non-Western front is that we didn't have this post-enlightenment fragmentation of knowledge into sociology here and psychology there and philosophy here and literature there. The poet in the so-called Middle East is the centrifuge of all of these uh, potentialities. They're the coalescence of the storyteller, the sage, the mystic, the revolutionary, uh, all of these figures condensed into one blast. That's why they have to be so damned good and their lines have to be drenched with both meaning and style. Uh, because they have to inhabit all those roles simultaneously. Can you point in your 
I would say in your teenage years when you were just developing your aesthetic, what was your pull towards the dark, so to speak? Do you know what brought you into the territory of the night and mania? Yeah, I can, I can, I don't often divulge uh, very personal, personal details. <laughs> I'll give you mine if you no, give me no, yours. I'm, I'm happy to, I'm happy to, but no, uh, this is not among strangers, this is among, uh, among an inner circle, so I'm happy to share this. When I was 14, I was overcome by a smuggled videotape that had somehow made its way into my father's uh, collection of videotapes. It was not something that he had solicited or even had any interest in. It was the trial of an executed rebel uh, in Iran. And it was his last defense. And it was something that the, the king of the country at that point had publicly televised because he thought that it would demystify and destroy the aura of the rebels if he could show them humiliated and uh, and executed, in fact. So this was right before he was taken out you know, behind a wall, a stone wall, and shot by firing squad. And this is his last defense. And I remember that he was so articulate. Uh, and it was just astonishing to me at 14 to see the level of conviction, which at that time... I'll be honest with you, I, I made an early mistake, but I can't blame that 14-year-old version of myself. At first, I became enamored by tracing the ideology that he was espousing. You know, he was a leftist uh, sort of revolutionary like everyone was in the 1970s for the most part. And so I thought that must be what I was attracted to. Uh, but it wasn't, actually. It was, it was his, the existential dimension, the fact that he didn't tremble before his own fatality. The fact that he stood there and he looked this corrupt judge in the eye. And when that judge told him to sit down because he wasn't going to allow him to speak any further, I remember he just whispered, or in a very gravelly tone, he whispered the word nah, which means no. And he told the judge no, and he continued. And in a split second, which felt like an eternity of, of, of unrest and of disquiet in the courtroom, the judge let him continue. You know, he lost his authority. It was superseded by this figure who just at the level of the tone of his voice uh, you know, had vanquished him. And of course, the judge wins in the end because he's got a whole you know, sociopolitical matrix behind him ultimately. And he's playing with the power of the collective versus this individual who uh, you know, is just lightning in a bottle and about to die. Uh, but I watched that figure before he was you know, on the verge of perishing. I listened to his words, and I never forget that he quoted, he quoted a, a line of poetry. And that was my first real exposure uh, to this type of dark poetics. And it actually, paradoxically, it's, it's the antithesis of, of what you might think is a dark poetics, because the lines are just three haunting, simple lines. Which means a light in my hand, a light across from me. I go to war with darkness. And, and later, this is by Ahmad Shamlu, by the way, the, the, the great uh, vanguard poet of that time. And I just thought, I've got to chase those words. And I started looking for them. And eventually I found this figure who himself had been a political prisoner, who himself was often called the Shah-e-Shikanjaga, the poet of the torture chamber. Uh, and I started really studying, like a disciple would study a master. 
I started studying his contours, his moves. I went beyond ideologies. I went beyond the nationalist rhetoric that's, you know, surrounded him and the identitarian contextualization that Iranians themselves always wanted to impose upon him. You know, uh, and I started looking at this figure who could damn you with a single line, who would condemn you. He has a line where he says, I damn all of you on my father and on my son, and I damn my father and my son. You know, it's mm. a, it's an amazing, you know, and I said, I said, where does that wrath, where does that temperament come from? So at 14, I started going down alleyways trying to find this um, forbidden literature at the time. There was a time in which that poetry carried a death sentence in the homeland where it comes from, just to carry it on your person. Uh, so I so was it's like doubly it. meaningful that, that he recited it at his own death sentence. Exactly. Exa well, uh, not at his own death. That, that the other, work. the other man. I mean, yeah. the intimacy. You know, the intimacy. It's unspeakable in the West. I can't explain it to a generation that can instantaneously consume the most damaging lines. You can buy Nietzsche's entire life of work for you know twenty five dollars off of Amazon, uh, but it's something else when you have to steal through back alleyways, avoiding secret police. Uh, and you just go into a corner somewhere and you read these few lines that have been smuggled out from the prisons and have been circulated to you and you tear them up as quickly as you can after you memorize them, because that could bring your whole family to prison, you know, uh, if the wrong person finds them there. And so the intimacy of what it takes to uh, to play with your own mortality and, uh, you know, in that way, from the standpoint of the poet who inscribes those words and then from the reader is just something that is, uh, it's inexpressible. Uh, it's, it has a gravity beyond belief. But I started noticing again that that same line recurred on the tongues of many young people who were martyred. A lot of 18 and 19 year old youth, men and women who were executed during that time period and afterwards, who would recite this as their last lines uh, before they died, their last breath, essentially. And I just thought, my God, what does that do to the poet? Because he's seeing these videos, you know, or he's hearing of these things uh, and the burden, you know, the severity of that on his consciousness. And I wanted to figure out who could withstand that unbearable price of being the, the mouthpiece or the spokesperson or the echo of these ghosts, these wasted lives. So that was my first real exposure. And I will say this to, to Paul's original inquiry. My grandfather was my first teacher. He was my first teacher of literature and philosophy and mysticism because it's all wrapped up into one. And he taught me the classical Persian poets at age four or five and was reading them with him. Uh, and my grandfather was a genius. I adored him. He was wise beyond belief. He was a quiet uh, man with, uh, with a kind of heaviness to, her, to his persona. When he spoke, you listened. Uh, and I just, I, again, I was infatuated by his storytelling abilities. He had one of the most beautiful, elegant voices for recitation. But he absolutely hated this type of poetry that I started going after at age 14. He didn't consider it a personal betrayal to his great credit. You know, he didn't personalize it. He just aesthetically and existentially, he worried for me, but he also, to him, the definition of poetry was escape uh, and moments of, of transient pleasure or elegance in an otherwise brutal and cold world. And so to see poets lean into the dark, lean into the midnight, speak in apocalyptic tones, 
uh, he really was disturbed by that. But to his credit, he sat there for hours and hours and read the poetry with me. He hated every line of it. It went against every fiber in his being. Not to mention that just on the most uh, practical artistic level, it didn't rhyme or have meter or rhythm the way the classical poets did. So it offended him that way too, but with extreme patience. Somehow, I don't know if I could do that uh, for my grandchild someday, but he sat there and he read this poetry that he loathed because it offended everything that he was told or what he knew poetics to be and the responsibility of the poet, a poet who goes against the world, a poet who burns down cities. You know, uh, that was not something that he wanted to necessarily mm. enter into, but he did that for me as his gift. Do you ever wonder if perhaps he was maybe leading your hand? Like he, he did, in fact, see the power between manic obsession, this desire to extinguish, like he didn't want you to become a heretic or to follow in those footsteps because everything that you said that he perceived to be good poetry is how I perceive a lot of these poets that you write about. Exactly. It wasn't simply, yeah, he didn't have the luxury of neutrality. It wasn't just a disconnected judgment that he didn't like the poetry. He didn't like the destiny that came along with it most of the time. But I would have reminded him, and I did at one point uh, say this, that his favorite poem, Hafez, the great sensualist proto-romantic poet that Goethe spent a lifetime translating. Uh, you know, he was a, a poet of the ruins and of drunkenness and of cosmic intoxication. It's an amazing poetic figure. Hafez died in poverty with, with extreme debts, you know, with his wife and his child dead way before he died. You know, the man was in agony as well. He never left his city, his home city. Uh, there's, you know, nowadays, Hafez is this you know, revered, adored figure, of course, always posthumously, they come to recuperate. You know, Artaud has some great line, like, they laugh at us now and live off us later. So, of course, you've got a whole, you've got a whole millennium worth of parasites, you know, uh, who now- Gothic come, pull. Yeah, exactly, who voyeuristically now, I mean, it's even common custom in Iranian culture uh, on New Year's to uh, tell fortunes through Hafez's poetry. And I just think, God, and he's the most misfortunate one. If you read him, I remember Melville. Melville, some point at the end of his life, when Melville was dying, he said, uh, "I wrote the Gospels in this century, yet I should die in the gutter like a dog." Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, he died in in some alleyway, you know, sort of uh, begging for for money for wine as well. And so, my grandfather, you know, he elided that point a little bit, but deep down, he knew that all poets. And I guess I'm, I'm among them, you know, what you call what I do to be a kind of poetic philosophy or philosophical poetics. You know, we, um, our stories end badly, typically. But that also, that also was part of the motivation for, for this book. And I'll let you guys uh, take the conversation further, which is that, you know, one thing that I learned from him and from others never, is that nevertheless, even though we, we do die in bad situations often the time, or even though we're punished uh, immensely. Um, one, we deserve it. Uh, I say that I say that as a, as an existential practice because if I ever think that we are owed something else, you know that we are owed greater. That's when you start to get soft. You know, Nazim Hekmet, the great political prisoner poet from Turkey, the the, the most astonishing poet of the 20th century in Turkey. He always used to say, you know, he has a poem called Some Advice to Those Who Will Serve Time in Prison. 
meaning to the next generations. He spent, I can't remember, 19 or 27 years. God, when you get at that point, you stop, the, the number becomes irrelevant. Um, but he, I remember, said, try to have bad dreams in prison because good dreams will make you soft. You'll atrophy. Uh, and so one of the things, though, that, that I kept in mind was even though we have a long blood trail of, of you know, of martyred, martyred authors and thinkers and visionaries, you got to take your stab. You got to take your shot in your era. You have to keep it going. And we're always outnumbered and we're always sort of uh, sort of outforced by existing regimes. But nevertheless, we keep coming back as well. You know, we have that's the Nietzschean sort of eternal return. We're the infinitesimal ones that go up against infinity. And it's our obligation to take our stand every time to show them that we're still here. If for nothing else, out of pure spite, to deny them the pleasure of thinking that they annihilated us. Like that uh, moment of, of uh, temporarily silencing the judge, that even though you're not going to stay your execution, you did beat him in that one moment. Exactly, exactly. And we take our victories here and there. We have our strongholds. You know, one of my favorite writers, Sadr Hedayat, who wrote The Blind Owl, which I think is the greatest literary masterpiece. That oh, I've man, read. I'm so happy we've been talking about this up. Oh, we're going in that direction. Good, good, good. <laughs> yeah, well, I've I've picked up a I picked up four books from reading your books that I'm currently reading right now, and The Blind Owl is one of them, and it's really been blowing me away. Like, um, I've it's it's been a while since I've read something that like really brought it in the way that you're talking about. Of course, and you know, again, to just to go down that that uh, that bad passageway of of sad stories, you know, Hedad obviously is a suicidal writer, um, but he also, after his first suicide attempt where he was saved from drowning in a river, not by his own choice, by a, a, a kind bystander, which infuriated him, but then he took it as a signal that he had some unfinished business, some alternative destiny left unsettled, and he spent the next 12 years just manically writing and rewriting The Blind Owl. And I've seen those notebooks up close, just tens and tens of notebooks, and they're almost identical. It's a mosaic that he just wanted to get absolutely right and absolutely precisely. And then he then he uh, ended his life in Paris. And I've been to that apartment too, where the police wow. found him yeah, sprawled across the ground. And you can you can find it's hard to find online, but you can if you search hard enough, you can find the image of the photograph that the police took of him uh, when they put him on the bed. They took him off the kitchen floor and with some moment of decency, uh, they, they laid him down on the bed. And it's this beautiful, almost crescent moon blurred photo where his body is just arcing across the bed. And that's his. Uh, that's the last image of him. And so what, what, you know, what I take as the astounding um, achievement on his part is that it's, as you see, Paul, from reading it, it's not a book about Iran. It has nothing to do necessarily with, with the culture or the country or the region even. It's, a, it's a, you know, an, an unreal, hallucinatory, opium haze vision uh, of his own. And yet every regime in Iranian history since his death has banned it even though it doesn't have an ounce of socio of overt socio-political messaging to it. It's just uh, a solitary, bizarre figure's rant, you know, in an opium dream. And they tremble at sight of it. The theocracies have banned it. The monarchies have banned it. Hell, even the leftists banned it. 
when they had their chance. Oh, that's when you know it's good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you, when you checked all the boxes at once. <laughs> this brings me to two really important questions that come to my mind. Uh, one of them, especially obviously when reading your work and reading The Blind Owl, one of them is about pilgrimages, which I definitely want to get into. But do you think mania redeems nihilism? Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't want to necessarily draw a, a parallel here, but, but, you know, many of us know that two absolutely brilliant philosophers of the 20th century, uh, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari, wrote, you know, in favor of schizophrenia. They wrote A Thousand Plateaus, which is one of the most gorgeous and intricate philosophical works. You know, it's I, I can't stand people who, who are critical uh, of it because it's it's almost like as irrelevant as criticizing a dream. You know, if you're relating a dream to someone, you don't say, well, I disagree with that. Yeah. You know, just, just, you know, just drown in the imagery and in the gestures of it. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing. But what I noticed was that while they tried to redeem nihilism through uh, schizophrenia, schizophrenia was the most abused uh, sort of archetype of psychoanalysis and of society. It had become the ultimate scapegoat in the 20th century. It was the ultimate definition of psychosis. And so they were really in scorched earth, like just uh, bad zones trying to recover that. But I noticed something. I noticed that for all the thousands and hundreds of thousands of pages that Freud and his disciples uh, poured out, on different forms of psychosis and madness and the histories of insanity that they cataloged and their symptomatologies and their diagnoses, they all steered clear of mania. They're terrified of mania. Uh, mania would not bend the way every other madness that I would noticed from schizophrenia to hysteria, which was the kind of the original uh, psychoanalytic diagnosis of Freud's master Charcot, you know, hysteria, melancholia, obsession, paranoia, uh, all of these, one after another, could be documented, but mania barely ever crossed their lips. Uh, and the reason for that is they didn't know how to deal with it. It almost reminds me, I'll just make this parallel, you know, a lot of people don't recall this or recollect this just immediately, but the first word, according to the Western canon, and that's a very problematic idea, but if the first work of Western literature, or one of the first works, is supposedly Homer's Iliad, you know, we forget the fact that the first word then in the history of Western literature is rage. And it starts rage, Achilles. It's the first word of the Iliad. Uh. And, and I think that's an unbelievable thing because uh, as well as, by the way, there's a whole continuum there. The first novel supposedly in the canon of Western literature is Don Quixote by Cervantes, which is about a madman. The first modern novel is supposedly Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky, which is about a madman. And so when I but when I go back to rage, it, it's this ethos, it's this stance that Achilles inhabits. You know, he's the figure of rage. And there's a moment in the Iliad, and I've I've said this before, but it's my favorite moment that when he steps on the battlefield, the at the end of the sort of ten years of blood and guts and war, and Achilles is doing nothing presumably. He's just idle on the beach. But finally, when he advances on the battlefield, he finds an excuse. He finds a provocation, a justification to to unlock his his kind of mania. Uh, the whole Greek army that's supposedly on his side takes three steps back because they know he'll just kill everything in sight, that he doesn't understand parties or nations at that point. It's just whatever is in the realm of perception, he will slaughter. And he starts to do that. 
And he starts hacking bodies and mutilating and piling them up one after another in a river right in the middle of the battlefield. And the god of the river at that point becomes so disgusted and insulted that he goes to Mount Olympus and he protests to Zeus and the other gods, the Olympian gods, and says, this Achilles has offended me. He is choking my throat with the blood of his victims. Stop him. And if you read really closely, even though it's heretical, even in Homer's time, Homer essentially has Zeus mouth the words, I can't. He can't stop rage. And in the same vein, society, politics, economy, culture, religion, and psychoanalysis combined can't stop mania. And that was my reason that I wanted to go after it and to, to honor it to some extent in this work. That it's some, like the night, it's a kind of eternal and irrepressible flip mm -hmm. side to whatever is known or whatever claims to be in power. Exactly. And it's a fascination with one thing at the expense of everything else. And so the manic figure, you can't convince them of, you know, you can't get them to fight a war for you. You can't get them to vote for a political figure for you. You can't get them to become absorbed in everydayness. You know, they're infatuated with their stone guard. You know, or with their razor blades or with their library, whatever it is, you know, it's this it's this full immersion in a whirlpool or a vortex um, that of oblivion. You know, Nietzsche says this, too. I quote this all the time. He said, the artist is the one who forgets everything to do just one thing. Mm, I love that. It's a great line to describe mania, and that's what I wanted to do, to find these moments when poets would sink so deep into a single image or impulse or desire or material phenomenon, the wind, a mirror, uh, you know, uh, anything sort of that you could think of in that regard, and just, uh, yeah, the whole world would dissolve around them. I think that's the most powerful gesture of resistance, by the way. And maybe that's why, you know, when you talked about the very understandable, you know, 14-year-old mistake of thinking that it was the ideology that had empowered this, this figure, then maybe the problem with, you know, why most revolutions fail or most ideological projects fail is that they lack that mania, right? They over-intellectualize it or they're overly, they're overly terrestrial in some way, right? Or they have too much of an idea of how they're going to overcome something, but they're not just completely transported by that singular drive. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the reason, and you're exactly right, the reason why that figure was able to arrest the judge, if he had tried to engage in a political dialogue with the judge, if he was to accuse the judge of oppression or of injustice or of inequality, which was flagrantly you know, visible, if he had done that, it would have gone nowhere. It was a dead end. The judge would know how to maneuver within that dialectic and to suppress it and to exterminate, which he ultimately did. But that split second, that little sliver uh, of fugitive time where he was able to bring the whole courtroom to its knees and pause was because he was captured by the rhythm of his own words, you know? Uh, and, and that was the thing, it was the narrative dimension that he was just, he said, no, as in don't interrupt me, I'm on fire here. I'm in the zone here. And it had nothing to do at that point with uh, the political proceedings or the outcomes there. Uh, and nothing so to do with, you know, when you say outcomes, nothing to do with the future. The fact that they were about to kill him. But it almost it only had to do with the fact that they were about to kill him in that, you know, like, like you talk a lot about 
poetry or, or philosophy of the last moment or of the last word, that there's some sense that he was able to embody that because he knew he was going to die, right? He wasn't arguing about what's going to happen tomorrow or, you know, how's our our plan going to proceed? He was like, this is it. Here I am, right? That's a, that's a great qualification. Him. You know, there's a, there's a difference between the future as a kind of triumphant, uh, you know, legacy idea of, you know, I'm, I'm saying this is a message to future generations. That's not what was happening here. It was precisely as you said, someone standing at the precipice of a last breath, three seconds before the free fall and thinking, I'm going to summon the absolute damned best words uh, that I've ever said. This will be my best hour. And that takes ridiculous, absurd conviction. Um, and and composure uh, beyond belief. There's a story that my great my great grandfather, um, my grandfather's father, that when he was walking through the streets at 83 years old in his small town in Iran, that when his heart started seizing and he was having a heart attack and he knew he was going to die, that he placed his hat on the ground uh, very calmly and he took his suit jacket off. You know, men in those days always wore nice suits independent of what class they were. And so he took off his nice suit jacket, he folded it across his arm, put it on the ground, and he sat there uh, because he wanted to die in the public square with honor. He didn't want people to see him, you know, falter. Uh, and that that etched an image. I heard that story when I was got seven or eight years old. And I thought to myself, even Socrates says, philosophy is the art of learning to die well. And and my great-grandfather, according to the story, at least, died well. And so I guess that may be inscribed uh, a curiosity in me that I've been, I've been searching for a long time, too. These writers write when the world is about to disappear from underneath them, right in the doorways of that abyss. God, they speak their best lines. Oh, I love it. I mean, that Nietzsche line that you said reminds me of this uh, this line by Ralph Waldo Emerson, and it's, the way to write is to throw your body at the mark when all your arrows are spent. And it really makes me think about the idea of volume and relentlessness as a medium or as an aesthetic. I think it's something that you do in your books, but it also comes through in work, like even like films like Jardowski's work or Eden, Eden, Eden by Pierre Guita, uh, The Blind Owl, which we were just talking about. Like, do you think that relentlessness and volume can be an aesthetic that is maybe partial to being in books that is meant to overflow the bounds of what a reader is able to comprehend? That's a great, that's a great way to put it. Um, uh, I would have put that as the, the blurb on the back of the book. If, if I had met you before, uh, that's a, uh, keep, keep me in mind for the next one. <laughs> absolutely. No, that's, that's an excellent encapsulation. And, you know, you have a, you have a talent of uh, extracting personal, uh, personal details. So I'll share one more with you, which is that when I was, when I was embarking on my first book, uh, which was about chaos, it was called The Chaotic Imagination. And uh, I was, you know, I was, I look at it now, I mean, I, I'm, I'm actually proud, you know, that kid had some tricks up his sleeve, even though he didn't know half of what he was doing, you know, in those, in those spaces, but uh, nevertheless pulled something off that I'm, I still, I never reread old works, but I had to a few years ago. And I thought, God, what is this? It's going to be some cataclysmic confrontation with, you know, 20, 20 years ago when I was like unformed. And I was like, no, he's got all the speed and all the, 
you know, all the intensity that I still have now. And so I was reading, but this is what I was going to say is that when I wrote it, I had one advisor at Columbia University, a very brilliant, brilliant, uh, angry figure in many ways, uh, and very complicated figure. And he was a great master to me in many ways until I, I had to depart from his presence for various reasons just to go out on my own, but also because he disliked the terms that I was making in my, my writing. But uh, I remember the last piece of advice that he gave me, uh, which was that he said, if you keep writing like this, no major academic you know, institution is ever going to hire you. It's career suicide. <laughs> he said, he said, you're lucky if a, if a cult in Southern California, you know, <laughs> to, to, to that's, your, that's your fate. And so, so I remember he said that, but he said it, he said it seriously. And he said, so there's only one thing that you can do because uh, they're going to dismiss you. They're going to overlook you. Uh, doesn't matter if you're gifted or you're talented or you're you're more complex. That's not what they want to to hear. These are not their topics. These are not their writers. These are this is illegitimate, completely illegitimate. He said. So you have only one option. I said, what is it, professor? And he said, you have to become undeniable. Mm. And I said, he said, Anna. He said, you have to write so furiously and so much that you become an unstoppable thorn in their side. Be relentless. Yeah, that comes back to that question. That's why I told you that, because his advice was yeah. the only way you would survive this, because they're all going to be against you, is relentlessness. Become the loose cause of the unstoppable. Yeah, so yeah, that's what I've taken as my, as my duty. You know, and I don't personalize it. I take this that I'm in a long line. You know, maybe an abhorrent line, maybe an abominable line, maybe a depraved line. Who knows? But I cherish these figures. To me, they're the most, they're the most graceful. You know, even though they're the most demonized in their times. Um, and so I had to step up. There's no time for anxiety. There's no time for career opportunism. There's no time for. I've seen where they've been, and so if I lost jobs or lost chances, you know, uh, in the academy, that was nothing compared to what others had given up. So, but I had to do what they did, which was to become relentless and unstoppable to the point that there's too much of it floating out there for them to say, we've never heard of it. You know, uh, even if they'll never teach it, they'll never engage it, they'll never recommend it to their grad students, that's fine. Let them know that it's there at the very least. Um, so anyway, not, not for my own posterity, but to honor the tradition I come from. And I think that's what makes it so alive and so compelling to read your books is that they, you know, they are about the kinds of figures that we're talking about, but they really also channel those figures or they partake of their style, which is so different from the kinds of Nietzsche books or Kafka books that we were talking about before that are almost the opposite, right? There's something very, you know, those books feel extractive, that they're like dredging something out of <laughs> the corpse of, of a Nietzsche or a Kafka in order to promote their own agenda, you know, which is usually a professional agenda. Whereas I think your books, you know, they're, they're animated by the same people who you're talking about. Absolutely. You're, you're a writer and so you understand this, you know, and, and you, you both can attest to this as well. But I didn't, again, that's one other element of being from the other side culturally and, you know, uh, from the other side of the game, the other side of the globe where there isn't uh, a reigning intelligentsia. I mean, there's a state apparatus intelligentsia, but they're laughable and nobody takes them seriously. They're there for propagandistic reasons, but nobody's teaching these figures um, 
that I adore. And one, one interesting thing then is that if you are reading them in Iran or in Palestine or in Egypt or in any of these places, if you're reading these figures, it's because you want to be one of them. It's not because you want to be the guy who writes about Samuel Beckett. You know, uh, you want to you want to be Beckett. You want to be in that in those throws. You want to be in the game with them in the in the arena. And so, to me, it was always a strange response and a reaction that a very young version of me, when I first entered the academy, I had a a kind of accelerated path. I got I got my PhD when I was only twenty four, and I was uh, intellectually capable, but I was, you know, uh, I didn't quite understand the nuances and the pitfalls of some of those circles and the bad politics of it. But I always was naively dumbfounded or, or naively surprised by the stares I would get when I would submit some of this type of, you know, philosophical or theoretical writing. And they would say, who do you think you are? You, know, you think you're, you think you're Nietzsche, you think you're, you're one of these, and I'd say, isn't that the point? Isn't that why I studied them? Uh, is to try and operate that level, and they would look at me and say, "No, you're a scribe. You're not a you're not a, a a prophetic figure. You're not a messianic figure. They're the pantheon. You're just a scribe. You're a monk, essentially. You're you're a librarian, um, guarding the old manuscripts." And I couldn't stomach that because where I come from on the other side of the world, that's not why you read these figures. If you're going to read them, it's you. You better be good. You know, you better be among them. You better be striving or aspiring uh, to have words like those. So, yeah, definitely, I appreciate your noticing that and observing that, that I don't consider myself a scholar in the least in this regard, even though I know all these poets have memorized thousands of verses of their poetry. Nevertheless, all of that is in the service of me trying to show them that uh, I have my own game and I'm inviting them, you know, into the fold of that game. Uh, but... But that, yeah, I'm I'm one of the tribe. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it may, it definitely makes me feel that mania can, in fact, be transcendent. Because I remember a line that you said that mad figures exist in a state of emergency. Do you think that we're in a state of emergency right now, or have we passed that point of ever going back to what we think is going to be the uh, the middle, the neutral place? It's a great question. Well, this is that's a, a very complicated question in terms yeah. of words. No, 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 no. I, I I love it as a question because it's the most important one. You know, if we are searching for even the slightest trace of what some philosophers have called ecstasy, others have called vitality, others have called you know enchantment. You can call it whatever you want. If we are in a bad age, a stale age, um, a gray age. Although I would warn that almost every writer who's ever crossed the earth, every great one has thought they lived in the worst age of all time, you know, uh, because it's always been bad. You, you almost need to in order to become a writer. Yeah, exactly. To that extent, though, there is, there is some truth to the fact, though, that when I, when, if you ask me the question of what do these spells that I, that I weave in these books, how do they settle? How do they strike? Uh, oh, yeah, we're not in ancient pagan worlds where, you know, pharaoh sorcerers would speak a line and people would fall into trance. I wish we were in that state of immediacy. I wish we were, and maybe I'm romanticizing even that era, of course. Um, maybe that was not the majority even then. But nevertheless, I do think we're in a very strange time of saturated information, uh, which 
just makes um, the ability to rise to those temperatures uh, more difficult. But I will tell you, you can do it, but you have to be cunning. You have to be uh, manipulative to some extent. So, you know, Baudrillard said something uh, wondrous at the end of his life or near the end of his life before uh, when people weren't read, really reading him as much anymore. But he had said something uh, outstanding, which is he said, the only way to really contest uh, this era of hyperproduction, hyper-simulation, hyper-realities, everything talking at you, everything lying to you, everything selling you, is to revive an ancient concept of seduction. We need to become seductive again. It's the only thing that can win. Not serious, uh, like, like revolutionaries and academics and all of that, but seductive. You know, uh, we need to become those storytellers who would travel through your village in the ancient world. And, you know, the stranger on a strange night who for some reason keeps you in conversation until 4 a.m. But I will say this, I've done that. I've tried to inhabit that. I do that in my encounters. But I have no delusions of grandeur. I can captivate someone for an evening or for an hour, and I can make them think otherwise, and I can pull them slightly into other territories of possibility, and I can even make them almost vampirically by force become slightly more eloquent than they've ever been before, or more imaginative, but it doesn't last long. Well, you need to be a terrorist or a revolutionary to actually do it in the way that you can't come back from and you're all in. Uh, to some extent, but even even revolutionaries and terrorists are banal figures. Ultimately, you know, you you quoted Rambo. You know, Rambo said something like he couldn't stand uh, revolutionaries because they just did too much work, and he was extremely lazy. You know, and he, <laughs> he, and he and he privileged he privileged idleness, which so did Kafka. Kafka said that the essence of his genius was in the fact that he was perhaps the laziest writer who ever lived. Um, and the most unmusical. <laughs> but no, I, I take that to heart then that, you know, um, I've seen it. I've seen that look in the eye for a breath, for a spell, for a little meanwhile, you know, that you can pour into them and you can whisper in the ear and they'll say things that are unique and rare and anticipated. And it's not that you're conditioning it, meaning you're kind of almost in like in martial arts, you're training them for an anomaly. Oh, uh, yeah, you, want, yes. you want something original to emerge, but you set the stage for that originality, for that unanticipated, unpredictable thing. You know, I've said this before, too. One of the things I love is that if you study uh, medieval sword fighting, there are great masters who would train on uneven grounds, you know, bad altitudes, rocky settings and all that in order to train their footing for unpredictable steps. The same with pirate cultures. Pirates used to train loading their cannons on the ocean during storms to see if they could master the undulation of the waves or at least kind of acclimate themselves to unstable conditions. Uh, and gamblers do this all the time when they're facing weird streaks and luck and probability and it all comes converging down in the hand or the dice. You know, they, they have to figure a way to adapt and be versatile and to make it work for them. Um, and so anyway, all of this is in saying that uh, that's what you do. It's a kind of alchemy. How do you turn someone for a while? I try to do that in writing on a page. I try to do that in conversations in the right moments when you have just a sliver of separation or distance from the rest of the world. But inevitably, they fall back. And weirdly enough, they fall back with resentment a lot of the time. Or they feel maybe ashamed or afraid that they were able to be seduced in that way. 
Yeah, or or and also angered at the fact that they can't get back there. Yeah, right, right. Or that they need you to get there. You know, it makes them feel bad that they know they're capable of it, but they can't get themselves there. Of course, but you know, to to that to that effect again, that's another cultural difference because I never assumed, you know, uh, that when I met great poets or storytellers, uh, you know, or artists or visionary figures or mystics in the eastern parts of the world, in the Middle East, and I've traveled throughout the region, I've met some very, you know, intriguing, wonderful figures. I never assumed that they owed me anything other than those few minutes that they offered, you know, where they displayed something or they illuminated something, and then they would abandon you just as quickly as they met you. There was no sense of social obligation or uh, or any of that. Um, and so I always find it strange that people assume that there has to be a constant return, uh, you know, sort of to, to things. No, you can, we can spend a few minutes together and then we can depart and diverge as well. Yeah, I love this one thing that you said, that the artist is someone who obliterates everything to do one thing. And I think that must be, in reality, incredibly depressing to a student because then they realize that they'll never get there. And if they do, they're on this uh, path of uh, self-destruction that is a place of mania that you don't come back from that's both romantic but also must be deflating at the same time. Absolutely. Let, let me say this to both of you. If you picture, at least in the American context, since I know a lot of your audience is, is from the States, uh, if you picture in the American context the history of carnivals, and you imagine that they used to they used to surface, you know, and appear on the outskirts of small towns throughout very conservative areas of the country, morally conservative, religiously conservative, you know, nationalistic, ideological sort of 1920s, 1930s. And that parents, highly moralizing parents, judgmental parents, would nevertheless give their kids money to go to this decadent spectacle and participate in this weird ritual of freak shows and rides and overconsumption, you know, uh, and indulgence for a night, they would allow it. And the idea obviously is that it was to purge them of the impulse or the temptation, let them get it out of their <laughs> system once a year, you know, and we have rituals like that. But what amazes me is that they never, and they're right, the parents were never worried that their children would run away with the carnival. And to the same effect, you know, modern capitalism is not worried that when it creates an artificial simul simulation of a paradise like Las Vegas, where everything is, you know, is uh, sort of for grabs and nothing is illegal and you can gamble and you can, you know, indulge yourself and you can do all these yeah. things. The illusion, the, at least. The illusion, at least. Of course, it's the most staged and artificial and sort of a ridiculously cliched place. But nevertheless, they are right that all these people who plan their, you know, their uh, escapade in Vegas from six months in advance, you know, that they never stay in Las Vegas. They always go right back to their jobs the next week, you know, and, and capitalism banks on that uh, return to the productive cycle. Um, it's, in fact, built into its logic of productivity to allow these weekends and these weeks off. You know, that's why they're doing all these corporate retreats and yoga on the roof. You know, it's, it's a hilarious uh, sort of, you know, gesture that they're doing. But I was, I was the weird one who ran away with the carnival. You know, I was the one that my grandfather should not have exposed 
to these worlds or these poets because I I gave my life. To <laughs> you cannot escape the mark within, I guess. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I just I never went home again, and the and the person I was supposed to become, according to all social, political, economic, cultural contexts and histories, and I I killed that guy a long time ago. You know, he became a hypothetical figure at the mercy of this hypothetical figure who I invented out of necessity because I wanted to, you know, run away with the ghosts, essentially, you know, and, and with these great figures, these these strange deviant figures. So, um, but yeah, the que- but then it becomes an interesting question to me always of if you know the carnival is better, if you know, it's a question for Freud that why if people know their dreams are better than reality? meaning in their dreams, they can fly, they can metamorphose, they can levitate. You know, you can, you can feel passions, you can fulfill fantasies and wishes and desires. Why, why are people, do they feel obligated to the reality principle? Why do they elevate or privilege the waking world? In a fair fight, you would think that the dream would win every time, you know, uh, because it's not a fair fight, because they terrorize you. If you stay in the dream, that's what their asylums and their prisons and their hospitals uh, and their alleyways are for, you know, for mm-hmm. those who decide to, to dwell too long uh, in that ether. Well, they've got they've got a whole host of machinations, you know, for them. All right. I hope everyone enjoyed part one of our conversation with Jason Babek Mohavij. Part two comes out next week on Wednesday. In the meantime, uh, if you could give us a good rating on iTunes or on Spotify, we greatly appreciate it. And have a good night. <laughs>